welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Elaine Miller, aka Gusset Grippers. She's a pelvic health physio and stand-up comedian from Scotland. She's telling us about her stand-up show, how she's using it to increase awareness on pelvic floor dysfunction, and this um, interesting exciting company called Pelvic Roar that she started with some other physios. So I hope you enjoy the show today. I also wanted to shout out to my new patrons of the Pelvic Health Podcast. Thank you to everyone who has supported and donated. I made my monthly goal of $20. Yay! Um, so thank you so much to Alison Bryant, Candice Lamb, Jamie Lowy, Mary Grant, Paula Forster, Pim Sarika, Sharona Finch, Kathy Wallace, Jody Pulsifer, Marika Hart, and Alex Lopes. I hope I have said everybody's name right. And thank you so much again. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. We've got Elaine Miller today. Um, so Elaine, I'm going to let you tell us all about yourself. And today we're going to be talking about pelvic roar and I'm going to let you explain what that is as well. So tell us about yourself. Who are you? Thank you for having me on. Um, so I'm a physio based in Edinburgh in Scotland and my background's in sports stuff like lots and lots of physios have got an MSK background before yeah. they went to concert and stuff. And like lots of people that land up working in this field, then I had some personal experience about it. Most folk, I think, have either had problems with their leaking or know somebody who has, and that's what triggers the interest. Because we don't, I don't know how it is with you guys, but in the UK, we don't get taught an awful lot um, as undergrads about pelvic health at all, um, which is something that I'd like to see change. It's getting um, better, I think. But yeah, we yeah. still got a lot of work. It is, and it's one of the few fields of physio that's got gold standard evidence behind it. So it does seem a bit remiss that we're sending students out into the working world without basic knowledge of mm. what is in a field. However, I'll get there with that. Um, so I work two days a week in a little private practice in Edinburgh, and I wrote a com I had a hobby of stand-up comedy, and I wrote a show about pelvic floors, mainly because I'd had too much gin, and um, oh, you can't have too much gin ever, really. <laughs> you can make big mistakes. That's how I got at least that's one true. of my babies. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a, a patient had been telling me about a time that she'd wet herself on the doorstep. And she was from Glasgow, so she was funny. Like, she, she just was a very funny woman, like funny haha. And... <laughs> um, way that she told the story was brilliant and I said to her can I borrow that for like a five minute set on stage um so I did five minutes about wetting myself on the doorstep and four women came up to me in the comedy club and said me as well isn't it awful and none of them knew that I was a physio and none of them had spoken to their GP mm. and I thought that was interesting 
So I wondered, I'd seen people talk about the most abhorrent stuff on stage and as long as they make it funny enough, they get away with it. Yeah. So I wondered if it had potential for trying to convert women into going to see um, somebody in clinic. So I wrote a show, which is just like evidence-based practice. It's just what you tell people when they come into clinic. The idea is that they leave knowing what their pelvic floor is, what it does and where to take it if they think they've got a problem. Um, and it's not hard to make this stuff amusing. So the show did OK and at the Edinburgh Fringe. And because I live in Edinburgh, it's quite easy to do the Fringe. Um, so this year it's been picked up. I mean, I say the show did OK. The show did great because it was full and women are desperate for the information. So they were keen to come and, and see the show. Um, and I got, because it's evidence-based, I've got the references all listed. So healthcare professionals can use it for CPD, which oh I find very entertaining. <laughs> so they can get a certificate of attendance and reflective practice questions. So this year, I've got women coming that have been sent by their GP or by their midwife who saw the show last year. Um, and what I'd like to do with it is try and get some money to look at using humour as a health promotion tool, because all of this stuff, sexual dysfunctions and incontinence, is so embarrassing that that's such a barrier to people seeking help. Yeah. But if we kind of reach them out with clinic, then that's got potential, I think. Um, so the stats are that 25% of women with stress incontinence come to clinic. So if I did a show and then followed them up six months later to see how many of them had seen their GP, if it's more than 25%, we can say that there's some merit in reaching people out with clinic. Wow. So that's what I want to do after the Fringe. And the show's gone really well this year. It's had some smashing reviews and it's sold out and it's got five stars. So Oh, that's amazing. I know, it's really it's really exciting. Like and then I think, you know, it's a lot of flannel. It's you know, a review is only somebody's opinion. It doesn't actually you know, it's not meaningful. It's helpful. It's really and it's very flattering, but you know, what matters is the feedback from the people that come to see it. And I know that it works because I get emails from people saying, you know, I heard you in the radio. I went to see my GEP. I'm getting treatment. I'm getting better. So but you need to prove it. So that's why I'll do a bit of research. I'm waiting for the ethical approval to come. Oh, that's fun, um, isn't it? Yeah, it just takes a wee while. Mm. So um, that'll be for after the fringe. I'll just take the show to different towns and cities where I know people and put it on and see if I can get a couple of thousand people through. If I did 20 shows, that's 2,000 people, which is quite a big sampling. They're self-selecting, so it's not ideal, but it's a start. Yeah, but you just write it up in your limitations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and it's a lot easier than what you're undertaking. <laughs> oh, it's all fun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so, so um, interesting. Yeah, I'm I actually, I, I'm really enjoying it. Like, I like stand-up anyway, but comedy's totally undervalued in the arts world. Yeah. Like, you go to university to learn about theatre and about lighting and sound and, and all of these things have got sort of, like, worthiness behind them. You can't get a grant to do something in comedy, not in the no. UK. We're all limited to dance and theatre. But actually... As a tool, as a communication tool, comedy is really, really useful. And there's been some work done, not a lot. Um, there's a woman called Professor Sophie Scott, who's a neuroscientist at University College London. And she did her PhD looking at the science of happiness and what laughter is. 
because not many primates laugh. It's pretty, it's unique to humans that we use it in the way, like chimpanzees socialise and they bare their teeth at each other in a way that's not aggressive, but we're the only animal that actually laughs as a bonding thing. And what she found was that basically it's a shortcut to building relationships, that if you share a sense of humour with somebody, you, you instantly know that you're going to get on with them. And from a therapeutic relationship point of view, that's relevant, that you know that you can get somebody's trust by getting their sense of humour. And good therapists do this amazing thing where they can morph themselves between patients. So they might be quite formal and direct Mm. and factual with one. And then the next one, they're sort of cajoling and nudging. And I don't know exactly how they do it, but there's something about being able to see somebody take three steps and sit down next to you that means that you've measured them and you know how to interact with them just instinctively. It's amazing. And humour can be helpful in that. It can also mess it up. I was going to say, what if somebody's not very funny? Can you teach people to be funny? There's lots of people have made a lot of money out of trying. Um, I think there's a formula to it. I think anybody can write a joke and deliver a joke. Anybody can do. There's a thing here called Bright Club that was set up at the university where they were getting academics to do um, stand up about the research as part of outreach work to try and disseminate the information. Um, and they give them a bit of help. So, because some of these people haven't come out of a lab for 20 years, <laughs> some of them are living quite in different lives from mainstream so they get them to think about whatever the research is and then they have a comedian that kind of holds their hand to find the funny nail it down to eight minutes they do a couple of practices and then they get up in front of 200 people and present their their dissertation but in a really humorous way and it's brilliant because it's so interesting seeing what people are experts in and there's always funny in something it doesn't matter like the funniest place I've ever worked was intensive care, which is a place full of tragedy and awfulness. But the staff manage that level of stress through humour. There's humour everywhere. So there was a guy that I saw, the last one that I was at of Bright Club, who was a researcher in, in um, runes, you know, like in stone writing. Ruins, ruins. yeah. And he had um, come across some stone slabs in the bottom of the university that had runic writing on it but nobody had ever translated it so he set about translating this stuff that nobody had looked at for 200 years since it had been found and it was chat-up lines from vikings no. like shy vikings who get oh. <laughs> <could pick> a friend <laughs> oh. wow like, like love letters and things that they were writing these angst-ridden vikings that were just sweet wee boys it was hilarious really really oh my god and totally changes the way you think of vikings yeah (laughs) so yeah so i think like humor for disseminating information for communicating with people is really undervalued and um and i i think it's got potential within a health context both individually when you're setting up a therapeutic relationship and oh yeah you were saying about making people laugh uh, funny so those people in the Bright Club, a lot of them aren't necessarily laugh-a-minute, class-clown kind of folk, but they can be taught to present something that is genuinely very good. Um, but if you don't have a sense of humour at all, then in day-to-day conversation, I think, you can upset people by saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Very easy. You need to be able to read people a little bit. 
Aye, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But people who are good at it, they're, they're amazing to watch how they get a whole crowd of folk laughing together. It's very impressive. So if you find with your research that it is a good idea, are you then going to create some courses to teach us how to be funny? <laughs> There's an idea. In the pelvic floor world? I mean, I think I'm pretty funny a lot of the times, but... <laughs> Find the funny in the funny. Yes. <laughs> That'd be a course. <laughs> See, in Canada, though, fanny is a totally different thing. It's not as funny. Because it's your butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why you get it wrong. I don't know, because, like, a fanny pack is a butt bag. Yeah. And see if I land up doing this stuff in, in Canada or America. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Because it's totally vernacular here yeah. and there. Yeah, I don't know. I'll need to. They'll just stare at you. Yeah. (laughs) You'll be standing in a vulva talking about a fanny. They'll be like, what? (laughs) This is weird. (laughs) People are already confused about their genitals. I could just make a bad situation a lot worse. (laughs) Or you could use it to your advantage within your, um, your set, your humor. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. The joke off. That's a great idea. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so now what is what is this pelvic roar that I keep hearing about? Well, with, with, uh, with me wanting to do research into using humour as a health promotion tool, with part of that, I landed up um, at our parliament doing part of the show in November to some of the politicians, the MSPs, um, member of the Scottish Parliament, it stands for, because I wanted them to... To look at using our public transport, we've got free Wi-Fi in the public transport, oh, nice. and I want a project using the landing page of the free Wi-Fi um, in order to put blogs out about pelvic health because people don't come to clinic. So if you get them where they are, which is on the way to work, and do a week, so ten blogs, a week's commuting in and out of work and give them a nugget each day that's funny, maybe as a bit of video, something practical for them to know about what normal peeing, pooing and sexual function is and where to seek help. So I did a bit of the show with the politicians and they they were really receptive and very helpful. Excuse me. So I have 11 MSPs that are interested in running this as a project. And we also have a baby box scheme in Scotland where every baby that's born, the parents have the option of accepting this box, which is, uh, I think it's from Finland originally, the idea. I thought that was a different name for a vagina. Okay, go on. (laughs) (laughs) I have never thought of that. (laughs) So, like, what are you talking about, baby box? (laughs) I'm stealing that, Laurie. Oh, go for it. (laughs) So, so in the box, the box is like a a hard... um, like a solid cardboard box and in it there's a mattress and sheets and baby grows and a thermometer and a little book and all the things that you need for the first Mm, um, 100 days of the baby's life Um, and the idea was that it was for social equality here and so that every baby has the same equipment and opportunities you know to make care easy and obviously babies are expensive for people Mm. so the hope was that everybody would accept this box and the uptake of it has been amazing. It's They've just released the figures because it's a year old and it's an 85% um, uptake, wow. which means that it works because if you actually need the equipment because of poverty, 
you're then going to use the, the clothing and things in it because all the yummy mummies babies are wearing the same little council uniform that all the babies are wearing the same stuff. It's good quality stuff that's in it. So there's no shame in having to use the, the free stuff from the government. Yeah. Um, what there's not in the baby box is any health education, any pelvic information or anything. It's just gifts for the baby from the state. So the MSPs were interested in me saying, what if you put something like a neem educator or some mm. vaginal cones or something into the baby box with a little bit of information about postnatal leaking? And they're not going to do it immediately, but at some point over the next two or three years, if they're having a problem and they've got that sitting in their knicker drawer, then it's more likely that they're going to um, seek help, I think. Yep. So I started doing a bit of work with the MSPs about that. And at the same time, there were um, Myra Robson, who runs Squeezy, the Pelvic Floor app. Um, she came up with that herself and her friend helped set it up. So she was doing lots of work with the mesh injured women in the UK and also Squeezy's great. Um, and Emma Brockwell is in London and she's a physio that specialises in postnatal exercise. So she's a running expert. She runs and runs and runs everywhere she can. <laughs> God love her. Um, but trying to get women to go back to exercise safely is difficult, especially with runners, because runners just mm. want to run. And so trying to get them educated and being safe to go back to impact exercise is what she, she works with. So she was involved with a multidisciplinary group that were um, speaking with Dame Sally Davis, who's, I'm just checking I've got that name right, who's the head of the British Medical Association, because she had... Um, been in the press saying that she'd had personal problems with incontinence and this is a problem and there's treatment available and why are we putting up with it so the, and there was also a woman called Marie Fell who was running a, um, a petition to get the government to look at postnatal care delivery and a group of mothers that were upset about the way that the postnatal care had gone who were also petitioning the government they're called the postnatal community and they're phenomenal they're just on it so all of us were doing things that were kind of like at government levels or with the House of Lords or whatever, and we were all working independently. And it's really, really hard to get traction if you're just one voice. Mm. So we decided to set up Pelvic Roar, and the idea of it is just to curate good evidence-based, politically motivated or critical thinking projects, charities, schemes, petitions, ideas, it doesn't matter and try and get traction for them. Um, because globally, there's some amazing work going on. But in the UK, there must be maybe 40 or 50 different menopause organisations that I've heard of. Mm. And they're all small and they work really, really well. But together, we could maybe make more of an impact in the media. Um, in the UK, there's only about 13 specialist um, menopause clinics, mm. which is bonkers, because it's 51% of the population that that will have the menopause, a significant number of them have problems. So why are we not addressing it? It's maddening. So that was the idea of pelvic grower. Um, and the other thing was to try and make things easy for clinicians. Um, so, for instance, when it's um, World Continence Week in June, in the UK, there's not many people do much with World Continence Week because it takes time to create content to put yeah. out on social media. But 
because of the number of us that there are, if we've all got similar message, we all want the same thing. So if it could just be handed to you in a pack that's copyright free and there you go, get on with it. We thought that that would work. So we're trying to create content that's free and downloadable and evidence based for people to take and adjust as they see fit and, and do with whatever they see fit. Because sole practitioners, I mean, you're busy, really, mm. really busy doing social media stuff is such a headache that it just doesn't quite get done for lots of folk so we thought that that would be useful and the other thing is to try and tie in people who aren't physiotherapists but work in pelvic health so not just within the medical sphere because obviously there's the mesh crisis which is an issue um, there's some very very pro physio um, surgeons in the UK um, so they're very keen to make links with us all um, but also the, well, the urologists and the, the medics, obviously, but GPs get very little training in conservative yeah. treatment to get them information about what we can actually do for their patients. Um, and then out with that, the fitness professionals, the um, Pilates instructors and the yoga teachers, because that's where women are going. They're mm. not coming to the physio clinic. They're going to Pilates and there are some fantastic Pilates teachers and all of these other professionals that really, really know what they're doing. And there's also people who don't have the right background and are potentially causing injuries to women. So we want to try and get like a base standard of education into all of these professionals and have them contributing. So I've got a good working relationship with a, a woman here who's a fitness professional and she's done lots and lots of um, postnatal work. Um, with um, Jenny Burrell's um, Holistic Core and Restore. She's one of her um, franchise owners. But she's also a great fit pro. And so I send her people and she sends me people and you get a good... I mean, I can get somebody dry, but I can't get them running a triathlon, hmm. but she can. Yeah. So people like that that are really on the ball, we should be embracing them and working much more closely, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then working with their, they don't have usually have governing bodies, but there's there's ways of trying to change training to make sure that it's safe. Um, and then using the media, because that's how to reach women. Yeah. You know, social media and the newspapers are immense and such a good tool. Um, but until they, I've, I've seen a real change in the last five years. That maybe about five years ago, I was trying to pitch an article to one of the tabloid newspapers here, who's got massive reach. Like it's the biggest read newspaper in the UK that they sell about 15 million of these newspapers every day. And it got up to, it was just an article about this is what is normal, this is not, go and seek help. And it got up to the editor and then he vetoed it saying he didn't want smelly old ladies in his newspaper. Oh, wow. But, yeah, and that's changed because now we're seeing much, much more information in tabloids and newspapers and broadsheet newspapers mm. about what you can expect after birth. And and I, I really am excited about that because you you reach women. There's a thing um, that happens in the UK. I did a stint on uh, last year on Women's Hour, which is a daily programme, um, like an, an current affairs programme but this slant is always for women it's on radio four here it's been going for years 70 years or something so i had a spot last year talking about pelvic health and after that they had a spike in referrals um to GPs. oh wow yep so I heard this i'm here for help so it definitely works um 
I did a little video with the BBC about the show. And they, it was an online bit of the BBC, not not for their um, TV, um, but the BBC website. In their wisdom, they put it onto the CBeebies Facebook page, the children's. Oh page. yeah. So it's me talking about orgasms and <gasps> wearing a vulva on the kids' Facebook page, and it had 1.7 million hits, which was genius marketing in their part. But they've sent me the statistics of the reach of this little video that they've done, and it's massive. Like wow. They, it's 1.7 million hits on the Facebook page, but they put it on the BBC News app, and it was there for 16 days. And the countries that it's gone through, through India and, like, worldwide, the reach is enormous. So that's what we want to do with Roar, just try and capitalise on the really good work that people are doing, which is phenomenal and widespread, yeah. get it traction so that more women hear that they really, really don't need to put up with it. So it's not setting up a database for people's online courses? Like, you're not trying, you're not setting up a database to promote um, everyone's, like, as in, are people, are people going to be contacting you saying, well, I have this online course for this, and you will put it up on your website? Well, I don't see why not. I mean, we're open to anything. It's sort of, yeah. it's very organic at the moment, because it's really new. Yeah. And, and finding courses is difficult. Like, I've had patients say that they've been looking for information, and they can't find evidence-based yeah. information on Google, because there's a lot of fitness professionals and yoga instructors that have got such fantastic marketing and such great use of social media that trying to sort of fight through some of the misconceptions is really mm. difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with people doing that because it's the same thing. There's some yeah. excellent online courses, but you have to know where to look. Yeah, and um, you can collate them and have it all available, all the links yeah. available through your website. Yeah, so yeah. it would just be like a landing page. And yeah. eventually what we would like would be so that you could see here's the different petitions that people are doing. Mm. Here's the work that's being done politically in Canada that, that you know, with all the, uh, like the Canadian Foundation, um, Continents Foundation, what are they actually mm. up to and what are they achieving and like a news exchange almost. Um, and not just for the UK. No, no, yeah. no, it's like the internet just makes it possible to do it globally hmm. and the majority of people obviously are westernized countries but for the women that are in developing countries that if we can talk about it much more openly here and get funding and things here then it makes it easier to target countries where women have no help and have no maternity care yeah um, and they've got birth injuries that these things take money to repair and to run the charities there's the Hamlin Foundation in Australia mm. and there's in Scotland um, called Pelvic oh, what's it called Freedom from Fistula Foundation um, and there's a number of them there's loads that for 300 pounds they can fix somebody's fistula and restore her back to, to working and being able to function as a human being and not being excluded from a community um, which is cheap. But in order for them to fundraise, if women here don't know about the issues at all, even with regards to themselves, they're not going to be giving money to charities for the same problem abroad. So I do, I kind of get in my soapbox a little bit about it because if we don't talk about it, other women are going to suffer. Apart from the women in the West that are already suffering, but the impact this stuff has 
on these dominant developing countries just destroys their lives. And it's easily fixed and prevented. I mean, we can't, we can't get them midwives, we can't change the infrastructure in these countries. But if we could try and get more money going towards them, I think that would be a pretty good outcome. Oh, that is amazing. Can you still hear me? Because the internet just did something really funny. Okay, I can. The um, volume just went down, but it's not. It's not you. <laughs> it's the internet, not you. We can blame it on that. So the, we don't have anything like what you're talking about with pelvic roar already, do we? If if there is one, I haven't been able to find it. Yeah. Which interests me because there are things going around that I don't know. But I I think yeah. about this stuff all of the time yeah. and I spend a ridiculous number of hours <laughs> surfing and trying to find stuff so yeah, yeah. if I can't find it nobody else can find it yeah. it's that I'm not aware of anything and I'm not aware of anything that's trying to engage with politicians and budget holders yeah. as well yeah. um, because the, the, the UK doesn't keep any statistics on the costs of incontinence it's madness we don't even keep the stats on the cost of people moving into residential care for bowel and bladder management. It's insane. They've got some figures about pad use and cost of that, but that's it. Now, in Australia, you guys did a great study in 2010 that was published in 2012 looking at the total burden of cost to the Australian government. Uh, Deloitte did it, and they said that it was just shy of $43 billion mm. a year. And I'm, I'm assuming that's why then you've got government funding to run things like the Conscience Foundation and the Victoria Conscience Foundation, um, which are doing amazing work, really. Because you have TV adverts and things in Australia to highlight that you don't need to put up with these problems, which is phenomenal. Um, so in the UK, I what I did with the, the politicians was say to them, $43 billion that at the time... There was three dollars to a pound, and there was also three UK citizens for every Australian citizen. So the numbers were eatsy peaksy, I thought. So I said to the politicians, "I'm not in any way an economist, but these figures are, are mind blowing. The potential to save billions of pounds is here because this stuff works. You know, mm. physio's got evidence behind it. So if you invest in physio." You can save public purse significant amounts of money and it will make your lungs stronger for longer. Because <laughs> 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 I've got a glass neck and I thought I need to get these people to listen to me and the majority of them are men. And what man isn't interested in his sexual function? So you're not just targeting women with pelvic roar and all that information to the politicians? Yeah, yeah. So that... I mean, most people go to politicians to say we need money for something. And it's mm. quite interesting at how quickly we've managed to get the ear of people with real influence when we're saying this is masses and masses of money and masses of misery because the mood disorders that are associated with mm. it, the um, people who don't exercise because they're wetting themselves from the exercise, it's all preventable. The yeah. World Health Organization said in 1996 that incontinence was a preventable condition, was largely preventable. So why are we now in 2018 still guddling around with long waiting lists and without addressing something that is a public health crisis? Um, so I think that's why we're managing, the three of us, to get this 
sort of links into the House of Lords and the and the two parliaments here, um, because financially it makes sense. Mm. That's politicians' interest. Plus, women vote, so yeah. anything that makes women happier is in their own is in their own interest as well. I think that's true of any westernised country. That we need, I think, as a profession, we need to be singing more about how good we are and what we can achieve. Yeah. Um, which is hard when you're in a, a, a sole practice or if you're in a busy department that's got a waiting list. There's no time to be sitting doing the rest of this. Um, so, yeah, that's why collaboration is a good thing. Yeah. Oh, that is brilliant. So will you keep us up to date through the Pelvic Roar website on all these advances that are happening with what you're trying to do? Yeah, yeah, for sure, because we want people to engage in it. The the thing that's holding us back at the moment is obviously there's no funding for this. Hmm. So um, Myra's son, who's 14, is the one that's doing the website. Oh, good on him. (laughs) Very, very good. Yeah. (laughs) I think remarkable of a young man of 14 to be tolerating setting things up to do with vulvas and sexual dysfunctions good for him um but yeah that's the the sort of level that we're operating at so trying to get the landing pages done and then trying to make the links into other people's sites and companies and and resources is going to take a little bit of time because he's at school oh i hope somebody's paying him (laughs) yes yes I've, i've said we need to we need to be sure and pay them not just minimum wage either because it's a skill that the three of us don't have. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got hours. So what is the website? Um, it's www.pelvicroar.co.uk, and it's oh. on Instagram as well as Pelvic Roar and on Facebook as Pelvic Roar and Twitter. And Twitter, yes. I'm like, hold on, I remember Twitter as well. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. put all I'll put all the links on the show notes so everybody can kind yeah. of get through. And what what do you use one avenue more than the other for social media? No, we're trying to use them all. Yeah, um, it's Myra and Emma that are doing that more. Okay, um, but yeah, anything that that works. I think like Twitter's good for business and for political things and for news things. But yeah. Instagram seems to be better for the younger people trying to reach them. They're not using Facebook quite so much according to the algorithms. Well, that's because um, you don't have to read anything really. You just look at pictures. So, um, as yeah. long as something is visually appealing, then people may stop and read. Otherwise, you don't have to use your brain as much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So if anything works, if anything of this sounds appealing to people or they think that there's something that is useful for them or that would sound useful to sort of collaborate with, then please do get in touch because it's it's supposed to be, you know, for everybody. It's supposed to be for anybody to use to their own advantage and then just try and find each other to collaborate with. Are you looking for anything specific from people? Well, no, just to help grow it, I suppose. So if you yeah. know somebody that is um, involved with a school of um, Pilates teachers or something about trying to find out what they need and what they want. Um, because the other thing about the research that I get annoyed about is most of the research is done on participants that are gained from clinic, hmm. which makes total sense because... If you've got your funding and your supervisor and your PhD place and you've worked out how to actually pull all this together, the last thing you want to be doing is scuttling around trying to find somebody to do the... the I'll be doing that. 
I will be recruiting from the general public. <laughs> it's, an, it's a nightmare to do. It's a big, yeah. big job. Where their participants are, and that's clinic. Yeah. But clinic overrepresented with white middle class women in mm. every Western society. So in the UK, we know nothing about women from ethnically diverse populations, um, geographically remote areas, and yeah. different social economic groups. So actually, this figure of one point three women are sorry, one in three women are wetting themselves. I don't think that's right. I've never thought it was right. It's I always think it's higher than what it's stated to be and think how many people are actually not talking about it as well. Yeah. 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 The question, do you wet yourself? It's yeah. an unusual woman who admits to that. Yeah. Um, and we know that hardly any of the women go to clinic in the first place. So the, the stats, I think, are pretty flawed. Um, so it would be really helpful. Um, so that's why we're, we're trying to find people that work in geographically remote areas and what, ask the community, see if you can figure out what the instance, what the prevalence is. Um, and the next step with the show would be to try and get funding to do a tour to geographically remote places and then do this research, see if the what their experience is. There's a good organisation in Edinburgh called Social Bite and they um, they are like a, a fast food kind of outlet. The food's really good. Um, they make up sandwiches. It's a bit like Pret-a-Manger or one of these sandwich chains but they employ people that have been homeless and train them up, give them skills so that then they can get a reference and get work. Um, now they do a lot of social things in the evening with women's groups so trying to go and talk to women that are in insecure housing and how are you managing and what what effect does leaking have on you if you can't access um, toiletries and places to get clean and what's the impact on the mental health? Because a lot of these women have got, you know, comorbidities with their mental health anyway because of the situation that they're in or perhaps causing the, situ the housing situation that they're in. So trying to reach that sort of group and see if we can get decent information about the true prevalence, because that's how we secure funding, so we can get more physios trained, and then, you know, it's job security <laughs> for us all, because there's not a shortage of work. There's plenty of work for us to be doing. Yeah, all that is excellent. So is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, just thanks very much for having me on because I love your podcast. I'm a bit of a fan. I'm oh, fangirling here. Thanks. For oh, well, can you can you um can you tell us a joke? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at telling jokes. I don't really have many. I'll tell you my my son's favourite one is um, why does a squirrel swim in his back? Why? To keep his nuts dry. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> Oh, what was what did I have one the other day? Oh, my son said, um, "Have you seen the movie Constipated?" No, because it never came out. Ha ha! Oh, oh that's brilliant. <laughs> it was from a movie. He didn't make it up, but um, yes, there's there's my humor once again. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And um, again, the avenue is always open if you need to promote anything with Pelvic Roar or with um, your um, tour around, hopefully, the world with your routine. That would be quite nice. You never know. There's um, comedy festivals in, in Australia 
and um, they are here at the fringe, sort of like trying to hawk their wares. So, yeah, I quite like that. That'd be fun. Oh, that would be good. All right, um, thank you. To go. I might mess it up. <laughs> no, no, not at all. All right, Thanks. thank you so much, Elaine. Okay, see you. Bye.